My name is Nick Swan. I'm the associate pastor here at Grace, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Uh, this morning we're going to be beginning a new series on the life of Abraham, as Marshall said. Uh, we covered, if you can remember back this far, Genesis 1 through 11 in March uh, or January, February, March of last year, 2020. So uh, we, we took the rest of the year doing a different series. Now we're returning to Abraham for the first two months of this year. Uh, and we're going to begin in chapter 12 and go through 25. So if you could turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, it's uh, page 8 uh, in your pew Bible, or it's in the bulletin provided. We're going to be reading uh, Genesis 11:27 through 12, 9. Uh, the title of this morning's message is The Gap Between Promise and Reality. The Gap Between Promise and Reality. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis eleven twenty seven. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they had come to Haran, they settled there. The days of Haran were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'To your offspring I will give this land.' So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning uh, by the power of your spirit, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, that you would allow us to delight in you, to understand you, to experience conviction, to be strengthened, to be edified. Uh, May your spirit be at work in us, I ask in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever noticed that there is a gap where there can be a gap between promise, the promise of something, and the reality that we experience. A gap between what we imagine or hope for and what actually happens in our lives. This gap may be as simple as what you imagine a vacation will look like. Here's what I'm going to read on vacation. Here's what I'm going to eat or how I'm going to exercise on vacation. Here's how rested I'm going to feel when I come back from vacation. 
versus what you actually feel like when you come back from vacation. Oftentimes, I think I'm going to eat great. I eat horribly. I'm going to go to bed early and get plenty of rest. I stay up late binge-watching something on Netflix. I frequently come home more tired than when I left on that vacation. My pro- the promise of that vacation did not turn out to be my reality. We're coming out of the Christmas holidays. I'm sure more than a few of us had Clark Griswold-like dreams of what Christmas might look like in our homes. The, the family, the warmth, the children all getting along, being very happy. Everything that we ever dreamed for this holiday season versus what might have actually happened. Maybe you had a great Christmas, but maybe a few of us had experiences that fell short of the dreams and the hopes that we had for the holidays. The promise does not always make its way into reality. The character we are about to study, Abraham, the man called Abram in our passage, his name hadn't been changed yet, understood this tension, the tension between the gap between promise and reality. Abraham, like us, received wonderful promises of hope and salvation from God. And like us, Abraham also understood what it was like to live in the daily reality that can oftentimes fall painfully short of the promises that God has given us. The original audience of Genesis, the Israelites, they were also people who understood this tension. They were wandering in the wilderness when Moses wrote this book to them. They'd been led out of Egypt through all of these miraculous deliverances that God had had given to them. And yet 40 years later, they still hadn't reached the land that God had promised. They're still wandering in the wilderness. They're a people living in tension between redemption and consummation out of Egypt, but not yet in the promised land. And we too are a people who live in this tension. We're coming out of the Advent season. Christ has come and yet Christ has not yet come again. There is a now, we have these now promises, promises of what are yet to come, but they're not yet realities in our lives. There is a gap between Christ's first coming and his second coming and we feel that tension because we have promises that are not yet a reality for us. We feel this tension in our lives every day, sickness, death, Wars, famine, and political strife. Closer to home, we have friendships, marriages, and family relationships that are often gnawed or even destroyed by our sins. We have hopes and expectations that are dashed. The job we've lost, the financial strain we hope to avoid, the career we were aiming for that never quite came to fruition the addiction that we thought we would never struggle with, the health that we thought we would never lose, we are beginning to lose. Even when we experience all the successes of this life, it still gnaws at us because the hope that we had of satisfaction and rest that we thought success could bring us, it still didn't deliver what it promised. There is a gap between the promise and the reality. And I believe the main point of this passage this morning is that God calls us to live by faith as we live in the gap between the promises of God and the reality in which we live. God calls us to live by faith as we live in the gap between promise and reality. We have three points this morning. The man, the promise, and faith for the gap. The man, the promise, and faith for the gap. Our first point is the man. There are a few things that we need to consider about the man Abraham. First, we need to place him in his biblical, the biblical context of the story thus far. So Genesis, just by way of review, uh, begins Genesis 1 and 2 with God's creation. Everything's going well. It's a beautiful creation. God has placed Adam and Eve in the garden. They have each other. They're walking with God in the cool of the day. They have a wonderful creation which God has called them to 
oversee and take care of and steward. Sadly, in Genesis 3, we know what happens. There's the fall, and through Adam's sin, sin, sin spreads to all mankind, to creation, a broken relationship with God and with one another and with creation itself. But on the heels of this great fall, God gives them a promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman, that a descendant of Eve would one day crush the head of the serpent and therefore free the people from their enemies. And then this line winds its way down to Noah. And Noah comes, comes to life in a very wicked world. In Genesis 6 through 8, God sends judgment upon the earth. And he destroys all of mankind and all of creation. With the exception of this promised line, this promised seed, Noah and his family. Then the next low point comes in Genesis 11 where we have the Tower of Babel. Even after the flood, mankind has not learned their lesson. They're still wicked in their hearts, and so they decide, let's gather together rather than filling the earth the way God has called us to. We're going to make a monument to our own greatness. We're going to gather together and build this tower to the heavens, declaring our own glory in the face of God. And so God, in his judgment, confuses their language and scatters them, forming all of the nations of the earth. And it's out of this, this last episode that Abraham comes on the scene. Second thing to notice about Abraham is that he's descended from the promised line given to Eve, hearkening all the way back to Genesis 3.15. So frequently we get to these genealogies in our Bible in Genesis, beginning in Matthew, Luke 3. We kind of skim past them. But what God is pointing to in these genealogies, he's trying to connect us to the promises that this, this line that God has promised, it's moving forward and from that line will come the deliverer of man. Kind. And so we get this cue in Genesis 11, 10 and following, and we see that this line is continuing and that Abram is a descendant of that line. The third thing to notice is something that doesn't actually, uh, isn't actually stated in our passage. It's actually in Joshua, a uh, later book in the Bible. Joshua, in chapter 24, Joshua talks about Abraham and his family, saying this, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Hear this. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. It might be kind of shocking to you if you think of Abraham as this pillar of righteousness to come to find out in Joshua that actually Abraham and his family were all idolaters. They grew up in Ur of the Chaldeans and then they moved to Haran and both of these are, are places that are in the country of Babylon, the place that gave birth to Babel, the Tower of Babel. It was a place of great wickedness and Abraham, just like all the other people around him, even though he's from the promised line, is actually an idolater like those around him. Lastly, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. They draw attention to this a couple of times in our passage. Throughout the Old Testament, barrenness is a sign of God's judgment. It would have been a sign of great shame, both for Sarah and for Abraham. So when, Abraham, when God calls Abraham, he is one of the most unlikely recipients of God's promises and of God's grace. He's an idolater. He's living among an idolatrous people. He's married to a barren woman. And from this situation, God says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, the people of God. He's going to make a nation of worshipers out of an idolater and a barren 
woman. Abraham's reality should give us great hope because when the promises of God come to him, the promises we're going to read about in 12, 1 through 3, it will be abundantly clear that God's promises to Abraham are not based upon any merit in Abraham himself. God's promises are not given to us either on the basis of our merit, our worth. They're not given to us because of our righteousness or our riches or our beauty or our intelligence or our power or our influence. God's promises are given, in fact, to very unworthy people, just like Abraham and just like you and just like me. Promises that make abundantly clear that those who receive them by faith are receiving blessings that they do not deserve and they're solely because of the goodness and loving kindness of God. So if you're wondering this morning whether God can use you, whether God could even love you, I want you to take heart this morning because in God's economy, in God's world, his love is not, is not given to those who deserve love. His love is given to those who freely come to him by faith. God delights to use unworthy and ordinary people to do extraordinary things so that when all is said and done, what God does through us is to his glory. Let's look now at the promise that God makes to Abraham. So we now have the man and we now have the promise. These verses are so important, I want to read them again. Let's read together again, 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These verses are what are described as the Abrahamic covenant. To put simply, a covenant is a promise that God makes to his people. And in this covenant, God promises to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, to make them a people. He also promises to give them land in which to live, so they are to become a nation, a people that dwell in a particular place. And lastly, he promises to bless them and through them bless all of the families of the earth. He promises a people, land, and blessing. And in these verses, we see the next step in God's plan of Redemption. God promised that he would send the seed of a woman to crush the head of the serpent. And now we see that this seed is developing into a people, a nation that will dwell in a particular place in the blessings of God. And this promise that God makes to Abraham, it undergirds all of the covenant promises that are going to follow. So you've got this promises, promise in Genesis 3 of this seed. You now have these promises of people, land, and blessing. Next, God's going to make promises to Moses where he gives them the Mosaic Covenant. And in that covenant, he gives them the law. He teaches them how to live a blessed life as God's people under God's rule in his land. He gives them the law that offers up the sacrificial system and the priesthood and then the temple that's there because God wants to bless them with his presence and he makes a way for sinful people to draw near to them so they might know the blessings of God and his presence among his people. The Mosaic Covenant also tells us how we are to have a king, that they're going to have a king set over them, a human king, and that one of these kings, God makes a promise to David, one of these kings, that one day there will be someone on David's throne that will be there forever, a forever king. And so what we begin to see is that this seed that God has promised has become a nation. And over that nation will be a man, the seed of the woman who will one day crush the head of the serpent. And all of this comes to fruition in the arrival of Jesus. 
All of the promises that God had made thus far, they come to fulfillment in Christ. He is that promised king. He is that serpent crusher. He is that priest and that king that will rule over God's people and will make a way for them to know the blessings of God. He's also the one through his sacrifice that will renew not just a land, but the entire world, a new heavens and a new earth. And so at the end of all time, we will be the people of God under the rule of Christ, dwelling in the land of God, the new heavens and the new earth, blessed by God and being a blessing to every tribe, tongue and nation that's represented there. And all of this is, all of this is in seed form in this promise made to Abraham. Now, Abraham, he probably wouldn't have had an inkling that all of this was coming. All he had were these, these promises of people, land, and blessing. But even what he could see, what he could understand, would have been staggering to him. God had called him an idolater out of Ur of the Chaldeans to be the father of a nation. God had called him, a man married to a barren woman, to father an entire nation of people. God had called him to inhabit an entire land and through him to fill that land, when as yet he had no child and he didn't own one square inch of land in Canaan. And all of this blessing was for him. It was freely given. He didn't deserve it. He didn't merit it. When he wasn't looking for it, God came to him, chose him, called him, and blessed him with promises. Do the promises of God ever seem too good to be true to you? I'm sure these promises seem too good to be true to Abraham. Think about the promises we have. Forgiveness, full and free. Every sin, not some of our sins, all of our sins, completely forgiven, full and free. Adoption, we're loved by God. Not because of any merit in us, but because like a father loves a child, he loves us unconditionally. God's promises of his presence to us, that he's with us, that he'll never forsake us, that nothing can ever snatch us out of his hand. The promise of eternal life, that death will one day be defeated, that sickness will be banished, that we'll have nothing left to fear, and that we'll have the hope of glory that will satisfy us for eternity. These are the promises that we know and that we love, and sometimes they seem too good to be true because often when we hear those promises, we compare them to the reality in which we're actually living. And those promises can seem so far from the life that we actually live. And so what are we supposed to do when we're confronted with these glorious promises that seem so far removed from where we're actually living? I believe that what God calls us to is faith for that gap between the promise and the reality. Point number three, faith in the gap. Despite being an idolater, despite not owning any land, despite being married to a barren woman, Abraham, by faith, clung to the promises of God and responded by obeying God's call. Let's read together again verses four and five. This is Abraham's response. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. This was an amazing act of faith. Think about how you would respond if suddenly God called you to go to Romania. You... Do you know the language there? No? 
Uh, do you have a job there, prospects there? No. Do you have a home there, relatives there? No. Why are you going to Romania? God told me to. In that moment, you respond simply with, I went just as the Lord told me. That's what Abraham did. He packed up all of his belongings, his family, all of the servants in his household, all of the cattle that he had, and he, he went to a nation where he owned nothing, he knew no one, all because God had called him and promised to him that if he went there, God would go with him, make him into a nation, give him the land and blessing. And then by faith, Abraham went to Canaan. By faith, he walked the length of that land, which is roughly the size of New Jersey, all of these markers that you see in the passage. He's just walking from north all the way down to the south. And all along the way, God is saying, I'm going to make you into a nation that fills this entire land. And he built altars and he worshiped God, trusting that what God said, as improbable as it sounded, would come to fruition. This is faith. It's the same faith that led Noah, just a few chapters earlier, to build an ark when there had never been a flood. It's the same faith in the books to come allowed Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. It's the same faith that gave David the courage to fight Goliath when he was yet a boy. It's the same faith that led the disciples to believe that this carpenter from Nowheresville, Israel, was really the son of God, the Messiah. Most importantly, it's the same faith that enabled Jesus to rescue us. Of all people, Jesus know, knew and knows the gap between promise and reality. God, who had been with God for all eternity, the second person of the Trinity, had come to earth as a child, born to parents and laying in a manger, God in the flesh. And then for 30 years, he, he dwelled in obscurity in the middle of nowhere in Israel. And then suddenly he comes on the scene, and do the people recognize him as the Son of God? No. He entrusts himself to the Father for every word and every act, and all he gets is rejection and scorn and mockery from the very people he came to save. And then finally he entrusts himself to the Father, knowing that one day the reality of his suffering would lead to the promises of salvation if he would just give him himself for his people. And so he suffers and dies. The realities of this life poured out upon him so that you and I might have the promises yet to come. It's Jesus who shows us the way of faith that fills the gap between our present reality and the hope of the promises that God has given us. It's through Christ that we are given the gift of faith that enables us to cling to Christ when all reality around us points in the opposite direction. It's Christ who is with us, who cares for us, who fills that gap and promises that he will never leave or forsake us. God calls each of us to cling to Christ by faith, believing that one day, one day, the gap between our reality and the promises of God will finally and fully be closed by Christ himself. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Christ. If that's you, I urge you to consider this truth. There are many ways in which you can try to fill the gap between your hopes and the reality in which you are living. There are many ways this world will offer and promise you that if you will just give yourself to this thing, the longings of your heart will be satisfied and the gap between what you hope for and what you are living will be closed. But friends, it is a false promise. The prophet Jeremiah calls these false promises broken 
cisterns. No matter how hard you work to fill the gap in your life with the things of this world, your labor will be in vain. Your life will be like a a broken cistern. As quickly as you can pour in all the pleasures of the world into your broken soul, they will flow right out as quickly as they come in, never satisfying the longing of your heart. You will perpetually drink of the pleasures of this world, and yet you will never be satisfied. Only Christ can truly satisfy you. Turn to him, trust in him, rest in him. His promises are true. They do require faith. Your present reality may not change dramatically because you've trusted in him, but his promises are true and trustworthy and they will come to fruition. Trust in him and find satisfaction there. For some here this morning, your reality may be quite good. This is a different challenge, challenge of prosperity. The gap between promise and reality for you, it it may seem quite small. Life's actually pretty good. I kind of like the life that I'm living. If that's you, my encouragement to you is to ask the Lord where he might want to stretch you. Where he might want you to see that actually the glory you're living for is pales in comparison to the glory that is yet to come, opening up a gap that requires faith. Or maybe it's calling you to a new level of sacrifice that helps you open up a gap that only God can fill through faith. Maybe it's through greater acts of service to others, service that will require you to reconsider how you spend your time and your energy. Maybe it's through sacrificial giving to the mission of Christ's church. Sacrifice that will require you not to just pay lip service, but to acknowledge that every single cent you own belongs truly to God. Maybe it's foregoing further advancement at work and the money and the prestige that that would give you so that you can redirect your time and your energy to your family, to the church, and to serving those in our community. Maybe it's reconfiguring your schedule, the schedule of your children. Trusting that the most important investment you can make isn't in all of their extracurriculars, but it's in your family and in their souls and in their lives in this church. Whatever it is, be open to what God may have for you and know that whatever gap you may feel in that moment, God will always be faithful to give you rewards and promises that far outweigh the temporary sufferings of this life. Lastly, for those who are suffering acutely here this morning, where your reality is falling painfully short of God's promises, I want you to know that you are not alone. Every second of Christ's life was a second lived in a massive gap between the promises and the reality he was living. He knows and he understands your suffering He's walked through every temptation and every trial that you face. He knows it and he is with you through it. You can trust him. You can cling to him. Trusting that not only as you by faith cling to him, that he loves you so much that he is clinging to you and will never let you go. One way we enact our faith each week is when we come to this table, to the Lord's table. By faith we cling to Christ. We take up the symbols of his broken body and shed blood. The sacrifice that's made a way for us to have a promise in spite of the current reality in which we are living. And so as you come this morning, even if you're just clinging to faith, cling to Christ by faith 
as you come to the table and take and eat and drink, knowing that the promises given there will come to fruition, that you can trust him, that God will always deliver and that he will never let you go. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these wonderful promises. Thank you that in spite of our present reality, you give us promises that far outweigh any temporary suffering, and you give us the assurance of Christ pictured in the bread and in the cup that assure us that what you say is true is true, and that if we will cling to you by faith one day, we will taste and see the glory of all of your promises. May we cling to you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.